You're listening to Making Waves, fresh ideas in freshwater science. Making Waves is a monthly podcast where we talk about new ideas in freshwater science and why they matter to you. Making Waves is brought to you with support by the Society for Freshwater Science. This is Eric Moody. I'm here today with Dr. Will Graff, who is the University Foundation Distinguished Professor of Geography Emeritus at the University of South Carolina, and also a senior river scientist at the Nature Conservancy, and a plenary speaker at the Society for Freshwater Science 2013 meeting in Jacksonville, Florida. Thanks for joining me. Thanks very much, Eric. Your research has focused on more geomorphology than biology, but you're interested in linking the two. What got you interested in that subject? Well, actually, the interest goes a long way back. My parents were great hunters and fishers, and they always took me along with them. I I didn't develop that particular interest, but uh, by taking me with them at a very early age, I became interested in landscape analysis and landscape processes. And if you're growing up in northern Appalachia, that means biology and geology and climatology and hydrology. So that's where it all started. A lot of your work at least the work that you've talked about this meeting, focuses on hydropower dams. So tell us a little bit about what are hydropower dams, what makes them interesting? Very early on in my river research, I recognized the fact that the majority, if not every single American large river, is controlled to some degree by dams. Stimulated my interest in uh, the engineering part of the equation, uh, in addition to the science and natural science components. And hydropower dams were especially interesting to me because they have very uh, well-defined behavior patterns. They are designed to store and release water on particular schedules to meet specific demands, and that means they impose a highly artificial regime on the hydrology of the river. And uh, that means then uh, we must see some very unusual effects or very specific effects as a result of hydropower production. And, in fact, that is the case. We see a river regime created by dams that are devoted at least partially to hydropower. We see a regime that's very identifiable with daily patterns, monthly patterns, and annual patterns that are quite unlike the natural regime that they replace. And how does that affect contrast what you call run-of-the-river dams that don't uh, have storage reservoirs? Yes, run-of-river reservoirs are those that really aren't reservoirs. They don't store water, usually found behind small, low-head dams, maybe up to 25 or 30 feet tall. And these dams simply allow the amount of water that runs into their reservoirs to run out on the same schedule. So they they have no storage function. As a result, uh, these so-called run-of-river structures don't have a strong downstream impact except that they block fish passage uh, up and downstream. Storage reservoirs, on the other hand, that contain large amounts of water have the ability to dramatically alter the annual hydrograph of the river, that is the annual plot of discharge versus time. One of the things that you've talked about are the downstream sediment impacts of dams. And for an example, Mark Reisner's book, Cadillac Desert, He talked about the impacts of sediment filling in reservoirs. So why do you think that the downstream impacts are so important? Yes, Reisner's book, I think, was important because it stated in a popular way, something that was easily understood by the educated layperson, 
he was able to articulate things that were fairly obvious to those of us who were doing the research in the field, but hadn't quite got to the general public. And the point that sediment play a crucial role uh, in river processes that we're interested in in ecology means that anything that interrupts that flow of sediment from upstream areas to downstream areas is going to have significant effects on the environment. Reservoirs that store water also store sediment, and in some cases they store a lot of sediment. Mm -hmm. Gavin Point Dam on the Missouri, for example, is now almost 28% filled with sediment rather than water. So that sediment originally flowed downstream down the Missouri to join with the Mississippi River. As you may know, on the Louisiana coast, we have sediment problems. There's not enough sediment to sustain the delta, so we're losing our marshes. Well, part of that sediment that used to flow to those marshes on the southern coast are now stored behind dams on the upper Missouri River. So that's an example of the kind of the farthest reaching uh, effects that I can come up with uh, here in the United States. The Colorado River downstream from Glen Canyon and Hoover Dams is also sediment starved, which means its landforms and landscapes were created under circumstances where sediment supply was copious, and now it is not because those sediments are stored behind the reservoirs. There's also another dimension to sediment, and that is sediment quality. Mm -hmm. Just as we have water quality, we have sediment quality. And fine-grained sediments are notorious for carrying large amounts of pollutants, ranging from heavy metals to radionuclides to nutrients, such as phosphorus, for example, Mm -hmm. and nitrogen. So what happens to the sediment is the same thing that happens to the materials that piggyback on top of those sediments. In New England, for example, sediment behind small mill dams is often impregnated with heavy metals left over from the manufacturing era. So that now if we decide we would like to remove some of these dams to improve, say, river quality generally or landscape integrity, this is something that's pretty difficult to do because those sediments will be remobilized and then they'll move downstream with their attending uh, contaminants. The example that I I know best is the Blackstone River, which heads in Massachusetts. It flows past Worcester, Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. which was once the wire capital of the world, of all things, and then flows down uh, to the Atlantic through Rhode Island. Uh, A number of years ago, it was... I think that the ecological research into fishes showed very clearly we'd be advantaged if we removed some of the dams on the Blackstone. But it also was the case that if we do that, the heavy metals stored in the sediments behind the dams would be mobilized, swept down to the ocean in Rhode Island, and blanket the oyster beds offshore. So it's never it's never a simple question with a simple answer. Yeah, it's amazing to me how far-reaching the effects of some of these human impacts can really have. And one of the focal themes of your research is not just that research should be driven by scientific theory, but also to really consider these human and social impacts as well. Do you think that new scientists coming to the field should really think about these things more as they develop their research? Well, I think that during the latter 20th century, we were so concerned with out-competing the evil empire, uh, which was what the Soviet Union was to us at that point, that we simply went full speed ahead to create as much theory construction as possible. And that included the environmental sciences. Beginning about 1970, we were part of that great intellectual race, too. 
But the point is that the construction of theory has to be for some purpose. And all of us in this field, not all of us, but the great majority of us, are supported by public funds. So for the greater public good at some point, we need to step back and say, well, what does my theory really tell us that we can help the decision makers Mm -hmm. reach uh, political, frankly, goals, uh, such as sustainable, resilient environments that will be here for a long period of time? So I think that uh, I'm noticing among my graduate students a uh, not-so-gradual shift to an interest in developing theory using large data sets and solving practical real-world problems as well as building new theory. To conclude, around the world there's still a lot of undeveloped potential for hydropower, particularly in uh, Africa and Southeast Asia, some of these developing areas. Uh, What do you see as the future for how we could develop that sustainably in a way that will minimize some of these impacts that you've talked about? I think that our research here in the United States provides a foundation for informing the rest of the world about the sort of issues that they, like we, may encounter. And maybe we can learn some lessons from the American experience that are positive, but that also can help avoid some of the problems and mistakes that we made. Sharing our uh, scientific knowledge and engineering skills with these countries is absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. And it is also essential that the developing interest between nature and society, finding ways to make that intersection work effectively, is going to be absolutely essential. Because the areas of the world that are yet to be developed for their hydropower potential are generally poorer regions of the world than we are And when faced with a problem of feeding a hungry population or preserving endangered fishes and birds, I think the the choice that leaders in these countries will make is obvious. Mm -hmm. We need to provide assistance so that we can find, quote, the right answer to satisfy all of these needs. I think that rivers are an important part of American history and culture. And it is going to be very expensive for us to restore these environmental systems and ecosystems associated with them. If these rivers, in fact, are so culturally important to us, I would argue that it's well worth the cost. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you, Eric. You've been listening to Making Waves, made possible with support from the Society for Freshwater Science. For more information about this speaker, the podcast, or the society, please visit us on the web at www.freshwater-science.org. Be sure to join us each month for another fresh idea in freshwater science. Thanks for listening.